Well, last week we focused on missions as Scott shared with us and what the Lord would do uh, through CCF and international missions. And we're kind of at a halfway point in the book of Matthew. I know it's like halfway. Oh, no, what's the rest? But and so we're kind of just taking a break for a couple weeks here from the book of Matthew. And, and this morning we're going to take time to share with you a little bit regarding the men's ministry at CCF. Um, as you know, uh, we are a body and so goes one of us, goes all of us. Uh, that's a paraphrase of what the Lord says. When we one hurts, we all hurt. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. And so uh, there's a good segment of this church that are men. Amen. 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 <laughs> Amen. That's how God made us. But over the fat past few years, God's really blessed us with some opportunities for some sweet fellowship together. We've had some uh, uh, retreats together where God's uh, we've gathered the men from different churches and even our church. And we spent time hearing from the Lord and fellowshipping with one another. And we're always blessed when we're around one another, when we're around the word of God, when we're praying together and all those things that God has blessed us with. We've also had just the tremendous opportunity. Scott's been leading us in, in the men's breakfast uh, consistently. And it's just been a treasure for us as various men have shared their testimonies at times. We've heard from the word and, and as uh, we're just blessed by a lot, what God's doing and, and, and how many of us uh, men are kind of looking at the women going, man, they are, they're totally awesome. Anybody at the church, like the women's ministry led by Carol, Carol, you're awesome. We love you so much. And all the ladies that serve there. Well, uh, the elders have sensed for some time as, as I know many of you men have the need to kind of snowball off of what God has already been doing here in men's ministry. And we believe it's super important that the men uh, continue to grow in their walk and opportunities with the Lord uh, now more than ever. And as the elders have been praying and discussing the need for men's ministry, it seemed it's really seemed pleasing to the Lord. And uh, it seemed fitting for the time for the church to have a servant leader who would head up the men's ministry. Uh, someone to come alongside the men, someone who'd love them, someone who would teach them, someone who would hum humbly emulate what it is to be a man of God, not perfectly, but stumbling as we go forward by the grace of God. Amen. And, and, and Fred and I over the years have had the opportunity to serve alongside Marcus Wilcoxon. And we believe God, that's God's man for the moment. And, um, and this really became evident to Fred and I, and I know it is to you. It's just watching Marcus grow spiritually. He's grown in his love for the Lord, for the word, uh, his word and, and, and for you guys. I mean, he cares about you deeply and especially over and over in conversations when it comes to the men of the church as, as he's a man who's been in business his whole life, who's had to carry massive weight, who's had to fly all around the country and balance all these things. Um, it's just, it's just a sweet to see his heart for the Lord and for you guys and how much he loves you. If you could hear the conversations we have and, and there's so many men in this church that are awesome men of God. And we love you all. And, and, and we just believe that Marcus would be an awesome servant leader among you. And that along with you guys, that he would help make this men's ministry uh, go do what the Lord would have us to do in this area. And so this morning, we wanted to ask you to pray for Marcus as he begins to lead this ministry alongside other men like Scott. Armin Trout has been blessing us. But we wanted to dedicate this morning um, to have Marcus share his heart with what the Lord might have for us at CCF for the men. Amen. And so uh, 
Marcus, come on up here, brother. Yeah. <laughs> Lord, we lift up our brother Marcus and just ask you to bless him as he shares. Thank you so much for this guy. And thank you for the men that we get to be around. And uh, Lord, may we yeah. be a blessing to you and to all the women in our lives. May we be those humble servants, God. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. You're dismissed, I guess. Wow. Awesome. All right. Well, I've got my large print version, and i got to put my reading glasses on. Some of you can probably understand that. Um, yeah. Well, this is, this is exciting. I got my, this done Friday night and uh, let it sit overnight, and then Saturday morning I timed myself. You know, I tried not to go too fast. I told Karen how long it was, and she goes, you better be funny. <laughs> so I'm not sure how funny this is going to be today, but I'll, 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 I'll do my best. Uh, yeah, that was funny. Thanks, Oscar. Appreciate that. All right. Well, you know, Matt and Christine got to go to the Oregon coast. They were blessed with sunshine, right? It was sunny while you guys were down there. And, and uh, certainly when, when, when they're gone and when Matt's gone, we want to make sure that he doesn't have to worry about having a sermon ready when he gets back as well. So it's great for them to be able to go. And then timing of this just worked out well for, for talking about men's ministry. So um, I'm going to pray as well. So let's just bow our heads and pray for this. Uh, Lord God, uh, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your provision. And thank you for this body of believers. Lord, as we dive into your word today, we ask um, that we would not be misled or tempted by bias or agenda. We simply ask for your truth. We ask for your love. We ask for your understanding and alignment with your sovereign will. In your precious name, amen. Okay, uh, one quick little aside. So, um, you know, as we've been studying Matthew chapter 9, we saw the... the uh, uh, Pharisees start rolling out and, and shadowing Jesus and starting to ask pointed questions and so on. And then chapter 16, we just saw the Sadducees show up on the scenes. And, and the Pharisees and Sadducees are going to be around for the rest of, you know, the New Testament up until the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And we, had, we really enjoyed in our life group, and I think Fred mentioned in his as well, there were some questions about who are the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Where did they come from? What do they believe? What's the difference between them and so on? And I thought, man, I want to know that stuff, too. So uh, there's a there's an awesome Matt. Is there slide one? Thank you. So in my Bible, I've always really appreciated. There's a little table that says, here's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes and the Zealots. What were these folks all about? And then also, I really appreciate I have a book called um, uh, Manners and Customs of the Bible. And it has a, sec a section in there on sects in the in the Jewish uh, culture. And so I put about 20 copies of a one sheet, two sided one sheeter back there that just has this little uh, table from my Bible. And I copied a page from that uh, Manners and Customs of the Bible book. Um, if you want to learn more about the Pharisees and Sadducees, because we're going to be hearing about them dang near for every Sunday for a while. So there you go. That's back there. Okay, um, back to the main topic. So today I'm speaking to the men, and I'm speaking about the men. Um, well, Matt kind of already gave you an intro. I can skip through this, but we just, we really want to bless the men, and we want to understand what are the men challenged with, what are they tempted with, and how can the church best support them. So uh, we want to make the case 
for some core strategies. I'm going to call those pillars today for our men's ministry moving forward. That's our overarching goal today. But first, I want to take a quick little segue and I want to talk a little bit about people groups. So, you know, it's aren't we all the same? Why tailor a sermon for one category of Christians, in this case, men? Well, it's understandable because if you look at Galatians 3.28, I'll read that for you. Paul reminds us, he said, There is neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave or free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. That's the truth, right? We're all uh, one in Christ. God looks at us that way. And in Colossians 3.11, Paul reminds us, he says, There's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. Well, there are four reasons why I'm going to make the case that it's not only acceptable, but it's helpful and even necessary to speak of and to one particular people group. And again, today we're talking about and to the men. Well, first, I'm going to give you four reasons. First, the Bible frequently and consistently speaks about and to people groups. Consider the sampling. Ephesians 5 talks about husbands and wives. Ephesians 6, children and parents. Colossians 3, fathers and children. Titus 2, older men, young men, older women, younger women. Exodus 20 is part of the Ten, Command, uh, Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother. And even in Ephesians 4, when Paul's talking about the church, he says, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So in each of these examples, God is speaking about, and he's speaking to a specific people group. Now, we live in crazy times when society is a mess regarding differences and distinctions and roles and people groups. So let's not allow society's confusion to infiltrate and influence or override God's truth. Second, we were created differently. Our bodies, our systems, our chemistry, and physical capabilities are different. Although today's culture would like to deny or ignore these facts, reality and the truth argue otherwise. Third, the penalties from Adam and Eve's sin and the fall in the Garden of Eden were different. In Genesis 3, although Genesis 3 describes both of their curses as painful, right? It said the woman's pain will be associated with childbearing and strained relationship with her husband. And the man's pain will be associated with the ground, toil, and sweat of your brow. So starting with the fall, the curses that we feel are different. And fourth, although we share many sinful behaviors... Men and women commonly have different temptations and struggles, although at the root, we all struggle with sin and pride, right? It's all the same thing. The temptations, the manifestations, and the damage of sin for men can be somewhat different. An example is pornography. By various accounts, men are four times more likely to watch pornography. Pornography plays a uh, place to common weakness, temptation, and struggle that men have. So in summary, we are created differently. The original penalties for sin are different. Our temptations and struggles can be different, although not universally. 
And as shown in the verses, the examples that I gave above, the Bible clearly and consistently speaks about and to people groups by gender, by age, by belief, by practice, by role, by expectations and other groupings not highlighted. So to circle back, this sermon is not about differences between men and women. This sermon is about strategies for our men's ministry and highlighting the direction we want to take it. There will be plenty of overlap and similarity between our men's and women's ministry here at CCF. More on that later. However, we feel that our women's ministry, as Matt alluded to, has a strong foundation that is admirable and appreciated. In particular, their weekly meeting to fellowship and study and pray. We want to build on the success of monthly men's breakfasts to breakfasts to motivate, excuse me, support and expand our men's ministry. So we're going to take some time today to answer four questions. Thank you, Matt. Number one, what are men tempted by and struggle with? Number two, what does the Bible say? Number three, how can the church support men? And number four, what is God asking each of us? So the Bible contains thousands of years of documentation of men's temptation and struggles. Well, here in 2023, one may may be tempted to say things are harder now, or boy, things are different now. Really? I, I don't think so. King Solomon, in his reflections captured in Ecclesiastes, says this in verse 9 of chapter 1. He says, what has happened will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. We shouldn't let advancements in knowledge or technology fool us. The root cause of our sin, causes of our sin are timeless, stemming from our pride and fear. To see this, let's look at some prominent biblical men and consider what they struggled with. I'm not sure if these will be reassuring or convicting, but we're going to go through them, okay? So we're going to start off at the beginning. Let's start with the first man, Adam. So if you've got your Bible with you, we're going to do the easy one first. Genesis, far left. (laughs) Chapter 3, okay? So we're going we're gonna to go to Genesis chapter 3, and I'm only going to do a little bit of this uh, communal reading this morning. I won't make you find Obadiah in a heartbeat. So, Okay. We're going we're gonna to read Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13. I'll read it, and you can follow along. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did you really, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you're going to die. You will certainly not die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes are going to be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, ah, I heard you were in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to, not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, that serpent deceived me and I ate. Emphasis on my voice there. That's not text. So what do we see here with Adam? Well, number one, he was absent. Number two, he hid. Num number three, he made excuses. And then number four, fan favorite, he blamed. Fingers pointing everywhere. So men, can we identify <laughs> with anything in here? Probably not. Got that all covered. No blaming, no hiding, no absenteeism. Okay. Two, let's, let's talk a little bit about Moses. Now let's consider Moses, God's hand-picked leader to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and onto the promised land and author of the first five books of the Old Testament. So uh, I'm going to be reading a little bit from Exodus uh, at the end of chapter 3 and verse 4. You want to take it, Genesis, Exodus. Okay. So in chapter 3, verse 10, well, let me, back, let me back up. So God is commissioning Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt here. So in verse 10 of chapter 3, God says to Moses, so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. After Moses, after telling Moses what to do and what to say and what will happen, Moses began to fear and doubt. And in verse 1 of chapter 4, Moses said, well, what if they do not believe me or listen to me? After this, the Lord answers this. Mo After the Lord answers this, Moses raises his next objection in verse 10. In verse 10, he says, Oh, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord then reassures that he will help Moses speak and teach him what to say. Not being satisfied with the Lord's answer, Moses finally realized his true heart in verse 13. He says, oh, Lord, please send somebody else to do it. Right. So at this point, God responds with anger, exasperation, and then ultimately merciful accommodation via Moses's brother, Aaron. I encourage you to go back and read that. It's a it's a it's a great story to be reminded of. So what do we see here with Moses? Well, he exhibited doubt, fear, a little foot dragging. Lack of trust and a desire to get out of his calling and his responsibility. Um, again, men, can we identify with any of these? As, as Matt likes to say, anyone else or is it just me? So I'm confident it's not just me, but uh, that's what that'll be between you and the Lord. So number three, let's talk about David. So Moses, excuse me, Adam, Moses, and now David. So King David, he ruled over Israel, call it a thousand years ago. 
Israel's King David is emblematic of the wide range of temptations, struggles, emotions, and outcomes that a man can experience. For today, I want to focus on one episode. You can guess what that probably is, Bathsheba. Many of you are already familiar with this. So that story is captured in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So getting a little, going to get a little harder to track. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel. Is that right? Mrs. Evanick, I got that right? Okay, thank you. You taught my kids that. Okay. So in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, verse 1, read this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, uh, David sent Joab, who was his military commander, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, well, isn't that Bathsheba? the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came back to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. That put in the text so that we know it was David's uh, child. Then she, came, she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Through the rest of chapter 11 and on, into, and on into chapter 12, I'd encourage you to read that this week. David creates a real mess with death, denial, and destruction in his wake. He tries to fool Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to stay home from the war and be intimate with his wife. When this doesn't work, he arranges for Uriah to move to the front lines so he'll be killed. David then took Bathsheba as a wife. The account goes on to present how the prophet Nathan calls out famous with uh, calls out David with his famous rebuke. You are that man. Go back and read that story. David's household and by extension, his peers and the nation end up in chaos. His son Solomon is the last king of the unified nation, a nation that ultimately splits into two kingdoms each destroyed and exiled by the likes of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. What do we see David struggling with? Well, shirking responsibility, isolation, temptation, coveting, taking, deceit, murder, a wake of carnage. I won't ask in here who can relate to some of those things, but man, uh, that was rough. What, so what we do know is that David's life was a seesaw between disappointing and pleasing the Lord. It is comforting to know that he was also a man after God's own heart, as stated in 1 Samuel 13, 14, which is also reinforced in Acts 13, 22. Reading Psalm 51, we see David pouring out his heart to God, feeling the weight of his sin. We see God making it clear what he wants from David is a broken spirit and a contrite heart from us. One more Old Testament example. We, we, uh, well, we're going to talk about Jonah, the prophet Jonah. And 
It's way to the right in the Old Testament, and it's real skinny. So if you don't have cheater tabs, that might be hard to find. But with our study of Matthew, we were recently reintroduced to Jonah. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus lets the Pharisees and the Sadducees know that he won't be doing any miracles on demand for them. Rather, they would be given the sign of Jonah. This was foreshadowing Christ's death, time in the tomb, and his resurrection. In another way, there's also a sign of Jonah for us today in how he responds to God, or rather how he failed to respond to God. So Jonah was most likely written before the northern kingdom of Israel was wiped out and exiled in around 722 BC. God told Jonah to go to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh and preach repentance to them, to a nation infamous for their cruelty and depravity. What was Jonah's response? Well, in chapter 1, verse 3, we read that Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. Jonah got on a ship and headed in the exact opposite direction, in direct opposition to God's instruction. Eventually, God turned Jonah around, but only after a great storm, fear of sinking, being thrown into the ocean by his shipmates, and spending three days and nights in a great fish, only to be spit up back on dry land, pointed back towards Nineveh yet again. Jonah finally listened to and obeyed God. He preached repentance to the Nineveh's citizens, and they did. God relented and did not bring destruction upon them. Well, at least not right then. But as we see in chapter 4 of verse 1, it says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. It turns out Jonah did not want God to be slow with his anger, abound in love, or relent in just punishment for the Ninevites. Jonah wanted vengeance on the Ninevites so badly that in verse 3, it says, Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better to, for me to die than to live. Then he made himself a little shelter and sat in it, hoping to see destruction. <clears throat> we see Jonah give, or God give Jonah a vine for shade. The vine withers, and Jonah becomes faint from the scorching sun. In verses 8 and 9, we see Jonah say, It would be better for me to die than to live, and I'm angry enough to die. The book of Jonah ends on this note of anger towards a repentant people and a merciful God. So what do we see with this example of Jonah? Well, running away from God's clear instruction, creating danger and fear for others, forcing heavy-handedness from God, begrudgingly obeying and then resenting God, his attributes and his sovereignty. And ultimately, Jonah goes down in flames of anger, questioning where, whether life is worth living. That's a pretty extreme example. I know, unfortunately, I can relate to some of those things. So four examples from the Old Testament, I think, makes the case that we men can be a mess and need help. At this point, though, I want to, uh, however, I think patterns of temptations and struggles can also be seen in the, Old, in the New Testament. I'm going to throw just a few of these out in rapid fire for your consideration. 
So in Matthew 15, Jesus says to his disciples, why are you so dull? They were slow to learn. Second, he fed 5,000 people, 4,000 people, and then what were they worried about? We didn't bring enough bread to eat, right? This this focus on today. Uh, was it James and John, brothers of thunder, right? What did they want to call down on the Samaritans? Fire, right? Vindictive. Um, remember when in John 21, uh, Peter's told how he's gonna, his life is going to end. He's going to be taken where he doesn't want to go. And he turns and says, well, what about that guy? Points at John, right? He wanted what somebody else had. How many times did the apostles fall asleep in the garden when Jesus was praying? Three. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three, Mark 14. Sometimes we get too big for our britches. Remember in Matthew 16, Peter's going to tell Jesus, he's going to get in his business and tell him what's going to happen and not happen, right? Uh, Get away from me, Satan, he says. In Luke 22, we see the uh, disciples arguing about who's the greatest. I'm sure none of us get caught in any kind of competitive banter with others. In Luke 22, um, uh, Peter says, I'm going to go with you right to the end. And then he ends up, he's talking a good game. But when it comes down to it, he denied Christ three times. Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15 they get in a, what's called a sharp dispute over Mark. And what do they do? They split and go their own ways. Now, God used that, and they came back, and later it's clear Paul was affectionate towards Mark, but they were in sharp dispute. And finally, if you read Romans 7, Paul laments, I do what I don't want to do, and I do what I don't want, oh, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do, right? I can relate to that. So aren't we all like the apostles? There's no end to our foolishness, our dullness, our bumbling. We are a mess without Christ's forgiveness, patience, and spirit that makes all things new. So it's encouraging and reassuring to see these men ultimately transform from immature, selfish, and clueless to bold, focused, and committed, and humble. So I think we'd all like the same thing. So, but what about today? What about CCF? What about you and me? And what about our temptations and struggles? Well, as Matt mentioned, over the last half a year or so, I've had the honor of uh, many deep conversations with men, many of them in this church body, conversations about life, temptation, struggle, aspirations, priorities, focus, barriers, and faith. Each of these conversations was unique like the man I was talking to. Despite the uniqueness of each man, timeless patterns and commonalities emerged, not just for the men I spoke to, but stretching back thousands of years to the men of the Bible. So when stepping back and examining the struggles for men in the church, five patterns seem to emerge. So the first is regarding the word and prayer. Uh, Men often have trouble spending meaningful time in the word and prayer. Without investment and subsequent familiarity with scripture, men may be challenged in clearly articulating what they believe and why. 
This hinders spiritual leadership and discipleship and creates risk of extra and non-biblical views to become intermingled with faith, faith, such as weaving business or government or politics into church life. <clears throat> so the second struggle is relationships. Men often struggle in key relationships such as marriage, children, extended family, and in the workplace. Anger, fear, and pride are three common barriers to Christ-honoring relationships. Third, fellowship. Men often forego fellowship for independence and isolation, that is, being a loner. Many do not have intimate Christian male relationships that provide encouragement, growth, and accountability. Number four, distraction and temptation. Popular culture, politics, hobbies, and work pull at men's resources, their priorities, and time, reducing or limiting or preventing focus and differentiation as a Christian. Particularly dangerous and insidious is pornography as a temptation. And number five, leadership. All men are leaders in some way, whether in their family, their workplace, their community. But biblical leadership is not the same as worldly leadership. In some cases, men do not know how to lead. In other cases, they do not want to lead, perhaps due to fear or laziness. And in other cases, they are not allowed to lead, sometimes by their wife. Although not comprehensive or universal, this list seems to capture what we have heard from others, seen in others, and actually experienced ourselves. This list also seems to overlay well with the biblical examples we reviewed earlier. So reflecting on the biblical examples, the conversations with men, and our own experiences around temptation and struggle, the Elder Board landed on three pillars for our men's ministry here at CCF. These pillars are not a plan, but rather core strategies upon which plans will be built. Most importantly, these pillars are strongly and clearly supported by Scripture. So we're going to review these three pillars, and we're going to make the spiritual case, the, the scriptural case for each of the three pillars. So thank you, Matt. Um, the three pillars of our men's ministry are fellowship, prayer, and the word, study of the word. So we're going to take these one at a time, and we're going to see what Scripture says about them. So the first pillar is of men's CCF men's ministry will be fellowship. So men were not designed to be alone, nor isolated, nor unhelped through excessive independence. Consider Genesis 2, where God creates Adam. In verse 18, it says, It is not good for man to be alone, and I will make a helper suitable for him. It's not good to be alone, isolated, and out of fellowship, and we need help. We can't do everything ourselves. We need helpers in our life. This need for help goes all the way back to God's creation. Now consider Proverbs 27, 17. I love this verse which says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So 
men, we sharpen each other through encouragement, through modeling, through accountability. A blade unsharpened is dull and ineffective, and I would argue a dull blade is actually dangerous. Ever try cutting something with a dull blade? Goes bad. Now, let's consider Ecclesiastes 4, 7 through 12. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Goes on in verse 9, two are better than one because they have good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can def defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Very common verse. So what does this wisdom passage say? Well, it's not good to be alone. Two are better than one because of better return on our labor. We can help each other. We can better defend ourselves. And with more than one, it's harder to be broken. This is indeed timeless wisdom. Now let's consider Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Love this verse. Brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in sin, in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in that way you will fill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. When they, then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else for each one should carry their own load. I would encourage you to read that. The words used for burden or load are different in the context, and I would encourage you to study that. This passage speaks of gentle restoration and helping bear burdens. It's quite compelling. Now consider the often quoted passage, Acts 2.42, which describes the earliest church assembly. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So it isn't too hard to see the priorities and patterns in this verse, is it? The believers were together. Being together allowed them to study, fellowship, eat, and pray with others. And what was the result? Many were saved. And finally... Let's consider uh, the powerful passage in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And this says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on 
towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So we're supposed to stir each other up for good love and good works. We're to meet together to encourage. So now, men, it would be easy to say, eh, I'm not really good with other people or I'm an introvert by nature or I'm really too busy to fellowship or any of a myriad list of excuses we come up with to avoid fellowship. Well, it seems God's word is clear. We need each other and God wants us to spend time with each other. Men, the world wants us focused on anything but God and each other. Satan wants us to elevate and prioritize and focus on career, hobbies, interests, or other time consumers that prevent us from fellowshipping with others. We will always have the next project to do. Our job or career can be insatiable. I know you all know that. And who doesn't have a never-ending list of chores? The enemy wants us to put our personal priorities first ahead of others and ahead of God. So this leads to a critical reflective question. Who actually owns my time or our time? Well, I would ask, who creates it? Who created it? And who owns it? So let's make fellowship within the church, the body of Christ, as important as God intended it to be. No isolation, no loners, but rather biblical fellowship out of obedience and love. So that was the first pillar of our men's ministry, which is going to be fellowship. The second pillar of our men's ministry strategy is prayer. So a week ago, we had a men's breakfast. 29 guys showed up and it was awesome. We had food and we had fellowship. But the best part uh, was Scott Armentrout's sharing on the importance and effectiveness of prayer. Scott had been reading J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, highly recommended. If you don't have a copy of that, I and mean, he was compelled to share his learning. Scott asked the men in attendance what got in the way of prayer. Answers included distraction and priorities, time, isolation, anger, and other barriers. We were all struggling with the same things when it came to our prayer life. Scott went on to encourage us to be committed to and faithful in our prayer life. So folks, how do we know when something is important to God? Repetition, repetition. In a brief essay by Joe Carter, he summarized some helpful contextual statistics regarding prayer, which I really found interesting and helpful. First, there are approximately 650 prayers in the Bible. Second, there are approximately 450 recorded answers to prayer in the Bible. Third, the Bible records Jesus praying 25 different times during his earthly ministry. And fourth, Paul mentions prayer 41 times. So prayer is clearly important to God. So when considering prayer, two fundamental questions must come to mind. What is prayer and why do it? Well, I like the definition provided by the Billy Graham Evangelical Evangelistic Association. And this is what they say prayer is. They say prayer is spiritual communications between man and God 
a two-way relationship in which man should not only talk to God, but also to listen to him. Prayer to God is like a child's conversation with his father. It is natural for a child to ask his father for the things he needs. And I'm a big Ray Stedman fan. Ray said, prayer is faith expressed. True prayer is not pleading or cajoling a reluctant God. Never. That is never prayer. Prayer is believing. Prayer is faith. Prayer is thanking instead of complaining. Trust instead of trying. Rejoicing, accepting, appropriating, receiving. That is prayer. And regarding the second question of why pray, well, the word has much to say about this. Consider the following scriptures. If my, uh, this is 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. In Proverbs 15, 8, the Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but prayers of the upright pleases him. And in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Ephesians six eighteen, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. And a couple from first John. 1 John 3, 21 through 22. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And finally, I write these uh, from 1 John 5, 13 through 15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. So I know that was a lot, but actually, as we just said, there's 650 prayers and 450 answers in the Bible. So it wasn't that many as a percentage. So what do we see from these verses regarding prayer? Well, God hears our prayers and prayer leads to God's forgiveness. Prayer pleases God and it fights off temptation. It says we will receive what we pray for. Prayer can include all occasions and all requests and we need to constantly pray. We receive because we obey and please God and we can be confident in approaching God through prayer. So again, I like how Ray Steadman likes prayer to a father-child relationship. Ray says, prayer is forever the cry of a beloved child to his father. And frequently, it's the cry of a lost child who does not know his way. Ray goes on to say, the purpose of prayer is to bring us to an understanding of the program and the purpose of the father. So I'm a pretty simple creature, and I benefit from simple definitions and descriptions. I suppose that if someone asked me what prayer is and why do it, I would say 
Prayer is a conversation with God to align us with his will and his way. I would encourage you to do your own Berean work and answer the questions of what is prayer and why do it? So men, we need to be obedient and show our love for God by praying. I think we would agree that God's word is clear and compelling on this matter. Pillar three, the third pillar of our men's ministry is the study of God's word. Why the word study? Well, I like what J.I. Packer said, again, in that Knowing God book that Scott uh, shared with us last Saturday. Here's what J.I. Packer says about study of the word. He says, the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God who he calls his father. Why does Packer say this? Well, consider John 17, 3, which states in no uncertain terms, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This really is a... Drop the mic verse, isn't it? Eternal life is knowing God. Well, how can we know God? Well, in my simple pea brain, there's three ways we can know God. First, we see the qualities of God in his creation. The Apostle Paul makes this crystal clear in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And many of you are familiar with this verse says, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Excuse me. So we see God's invisible qualities from nature that surrounds us. In fact, this is so obvious that we are without excuse if we do not acknowledge God's existence and qualities as seen in nature. Beauty, complexity, patterns, symmetry, purpose, and design. Consider the human body, the double helix of DNA, uh, innumerable stars and galaxies. These all point to God. However, just as a painting gives us a narrow view into a painter, it does not mean we know the painter. Our observation of nature isn't enough to truly and comprehensively know God. So second, we learn about God through prayer, through creation and now prayer. Although we communicate with God through prayer, and this contributes to knowing him, prayer itself is incomplete to know God the way he intends us to. As we just discussed, God hears our prayers. Prayers align our understanding with his purpose and sovereignty. Prayer informs us of God's will and attributes. But in and of itself, our relationship through prayer does not fulfill our capacity or need to know God. Creation, prayer, the third way we know about God is through his word. 
<clears throat> God's word was given to us to know him. So continuing on my role of quoting J.I. Packer from his book, I like what he says about God's word. He says, Jesus's way of speaking to us now is not by uttering fresh words, but by rather, but rather by applying to our consciences those words of his that are recorded in the Gospels together with the rest of the biblical testimony about him. And I like what Packer goes on to say, but knowing Jesus Christ still remains as definite a relation of personal discipleship as it was for the 12 when he was on earth. The Jesus who walks through the gospel story walks with Christians now and knowing him involves going with him now as then. So Packer goes on <clears throat> to list four things, and this is his opinion, <clears throat> four things that knowing God involves. First, listening to God's word and receiving it as the Holy Spirit interprets it in application to oneself. Emphasis God's word. Second, noting God's nature and character as his word and works. Reveal it. Emphasis word. Third, accepting his invitations and doing what he commands. Emphasis, commands. Jesus said, if you'll love me, you'll obey my commands. His commands are in the word. And fourth, recognizing and rejoicing in the love that he has shown and the thus approaching you and drawing you into his divine nature. So again, this is Packer's opinion. Pretty smart guy. I think there's truth in here. So building on God's, number one, his revelation via nature, <clears throat> Number two, his communication relationship with us via prayer. And number three is the primary way that we know God. It tells us who he is, why we are here, and what our place is. Men's study of the Bible is what we do as believers. We should take time to define what we mean by study of the word. There is certainly value in listening to the word. We do this every Sunday. You're doing it right now. Listening to the word whenever we can, in the car, when we're doing chores, when we're exercising. Awesome. There's also value in reading the word. Simply opening the Bible and reading God's inspired word as it was given to inspired men. Read it straight up. And third, there's certainly value in reading books about God or commentaries. I've been quoting Packer's Knowing God and, uh, you know, we've got all sorts of commentaries and other things. And fourth, there's certainly value in placing reminders of God's word around us. Signs, placards, note cards. As Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8, which is called the Shema, it, it said it instructed the Israelites to place his word on our hearts, impart to our children, talk about constantly, tie on as symbols, and write on the door frames and the gates of our home. However, study of the word is critically important in addition to these things. So I'm blessed because at this point in my life, I have at least four opportunities to study the same passage each week. I listen to Matt's sermon on Sunday morning. Then I get another chance to discuss it with Fred and Matt during our elder meeting on Monday afternoon. Then I'm blessed by my brothers and sisters in Christ that come to our life group on Tuesday night and we review and go deeper. And finally, I'm blessed yet again on Thursday mornings with my biker Bible study group at, at our kitchen table. I get to hear the interpretations and takeaways of others. 
I get to be steel that's sharpened by others. I cannot tell you how this study has deepened and enriched my understanding of God through his word. Now, at this point, I'd like to emphasize three important contexts and perspectives around study of God's word. Number one, we are all at different places in life with different commitments and different limitations. Personally, I'm enjoying retirement. Anyone else out there? <laughs> and the flexibility that affords. We need to have grace for each other as we make time for study of God's word. What I need to ask myself is, do I fit study of God's word into my schedule or do I fit my schedule into God's priorities? Second, this doesn't mean we should each go to seminary. God bless you, those that go to seminary. Wonderful. But I like what the, re the reassurance that Packer gives when he says, you know, a simple Bible reader and sermon hearer who is full of the Holy Spirit will develop a far deeper acquaintance with God and Savior than a more learned scholar who's content with being theologically correct. And third, Scripture warns us about getting too cocky in our knowledge of our full of ourselves. Consider what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8 when he was addressing food sacrifice to idols. Paul says, now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge does what? Puffs up, who, while love does what? Builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So um, Paul reminds us that the pursuit and possession of knowledge can be dangerous. It can puff us up with arrogance. Paul is reminding us how important humility is as we pursue God through the word. As we study, God gets bigger and we get smaller. So in closing regarding the study of the word, man, if we don't know God's word, how can we recognize false teaching? How can we teach our children? How can we talk about God with our wives? How can we share the gospel? How can we defend our family and the church? And how can we properly live in the world without being of the world? In Ephesians 6, Paul talks of the armor of God as well as the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So uh, this, uh, I'm not a real movie aficionado, but this makes me think of the 1986 movie Crocodile Dundee. So there's a scene where the protagonist, Crocodile Dundee, is faced with a switchblade wielding hoodlum trying to rob him. Dundee pulls a much larger bush knife from his belt and says, that's not a knife, that's a knife, right? Holds it up. And it just cracked me up. So men, do you want to wield a figurative dull pocket knife or the mighty sharp sword of God's word? Last page. Here at CCF, we see the combination of fellowship, prayer, and the word as complementary, compounding, and critical to the function and mission of the church. For these reasons, they will be the pillars of our men's ministry. So I want to loop back. By the way, although this sermon was intended to explain, support, and present our strategies for men's ministry, it should be self-evidence that the importance of fellowship the importance of prayer and the importance of word are priorities for each and every follower of Christ. You agree? Amen. So as Matt said, I've offered to help lead up CCF's men's ministry. 
We're super excited to see what God has in store for us. We would love to hear what you think and need. We are all ears. Please reach out to us. Me, the elders, Scott, just let us know what's on your heart, what you think you heard today, what you think God is asking of you. So in closing, here are some reflective questions, this last slide, that were helpful to me during this process. So regarding fellowship, ask myself, do I isolate from others? Do I forego fellowship or for work or chores or hobbies? Is independence overly important to me? What is the price that I and others pay for my independence and isolation? Second, regarding prayer, and Scott helped kick this off last week at the men's breakfast. What does my prayer life look like? Is prayer a priority or is it an afterthought? Do I only pray when I need something? Do I lead my family in prayer? Do I avoid prayer? And third, regarding the word, am I studying God's word in a way that prepares me to answer questions, recognize error, and inspire my family, friends, and fellow Christians to study as well? Have I allowed extra biblical resources to overshadow or supplant the word itself? Constitution's important. Uh, seven hab or five habits for highly effective people or seven. Whatever. That's all neat stuff, but it's not the word. Is the word a burden, a chore, or an afterthought? Do I listen or read, but do not study? So men, let's commit to prayer, study, and reflection and follow where God leads us together. All right, that's it. Let's pray. So Lord God, thank you for the opportunity of fellowship with other believers. Thank you for allowing us to, through Christ's sacrifice, to approach your throne as Abba Father. Thank you for helping us know you through your word. We want to know you. We want to please you. Give us a desire and the commitment, focus, and discipline to fellowship, pray, and study your word all to your glory. Amen.